Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Maybe a little too long to get him on, but hey, we got him today, so we'll take advantage of the time we got with him. So today's guest is a co-owner of Beach Blast. They used to run the best beach facility here in Toronto. Now they're moving into the indoor game. He's also a coach with Unity Volleyball Club. Please welcome to the show, Josh Gluskin. Josh, thanks for doing this. Josh, thank you. It is good to finally be here. In a while, it's definitely been a while, and I think uh, some of our listeners will recognize your name right away. But maybe, maybe we just know you as the Beach Blast guy. So set the scene for me. What was your start in volleyball like? Way before you even got into co-owning Beach Blast and all that good stuff. Like, what were you doing as a kid? What other sports were you playing? Why is volleyball like you're living right now? <laughs> all right. Well, let's go back. Uh, growing up, I grew up in Toronto. I first. Got introduced to volleyball in gym class in elementary school, so maybe grade four or five. And I had a teacher; she loved volleyball. So in the, this is in the. I'm afraid to admit this: the late seventies. <laughs> we had our gym class playing, so it was like four rows of three or six rows of three on each side, and you could help serves. So if the person serving didn't get it over, anyone on the team could help it over, and. For some reason, I loved that aspect of volleyball. <laughs> so anyways, uh, me and a friend of mine, we were the only kids in our grade that made the school team that year. And there was like this one-off tournament at the end of the season and we won. And I don't think I'd really ever won anything before. So I enjoyed it. I played uh, a number of other sports, nothing competitively. Back in the 70s, we just used to play with our friends. We didn't have adults supervising us. So hockey and football and baseball and basketball. Anyways, I went into junior high school at St. Andrews. And our gym teacher was the Seneca College women's coach at the time. His name was Gord Williamson. I'm pretty sure he was one of the, if not the co-founder of Durham Attack. But I think Chris Williamson is his son. Small. Oh, I've never connected that, but you're probably right. 100% sure. I believe that's true. Yeah. Anyways, so volleyball was a big part of gym class. And unlike maybe your average phys ed teacher that didn't really know much about volleyball, he was giving us good instruction. So the school team was also quite successful. And so I played throughout junior high school and we had... I don't know if we did well, but it was volleyball with pass, set, hit. So it wasn't just, you know, hit the ball over, hit the ball over, hit the ball over. So then I went on to high school and I went to York Mills Collegiate where they also had uh, a pretty good volleyball program that probably was generated by all these good volleyball players coming from St. Andrews. (laughs) And before I got there, I think they came play second or third at OFSA the year before the senior team. So we won city championship my first year at York Mills. We had one amazing player. I don't know if you ever met Ron O'Hare. I don't think I have, no. He was the captain of the provincial team back then. He ended up playing at Queens. So we had this one amazing player and a bunch of his friends that played club volleyball as well. And there weren't that many clubs back then. So it was pretty exceptional. Our big rivals were were George S. Henry, and they had Clayton Cambocus and uh, Andrew White back then. Anyways, so I played throughout high school, but I really only played during volleyball season. My real sport that I fell in love with in high school was basketball. So I, I wisely chose two height-based sports, being five seven. <laughs> and uh, I played football with my friends on the weekends and. of the sports I did were unorganized, just me and my friends playing. So then I went to university, and I actually went to university in California at Irvine. 
So they're a big volleyball powerhouse now. They were not back then. I became I was the manager of the women's team in my first year of university. So a lot of that actually consisted of just going to practices and being an extra player or hitting balls. Like there wasn't actually much managing to do. So I really fell in love a little bit more with volleyball then. And I still, I hadn't really played beach volleyball at this point in time. So it was mostly indoor. Then I came back from university and I bought a portable volleyball system that are very common now, but back then that was not common. And I had one good friend that was a good volleyball player and two friends or three friends that were good athletes, not volleyball players. But I didn't know any other volleyball players, so we would set up a local school field and we played grass volleyball for probably six years of just us playing pickup. And I had no idea there were other volleyball players out there in the world. Soon enough, somebody from my old high school contacted me and said, we're looking for a volunteer volleyball coach. And I was in university, transferred to U of T, and I said, I'll go check it out. And I ended up saying, yes, I'll do it. So that turned into five years of volunteer coaching at my old high school. And I don't know if it's still the same, but back then, it was five days a week. This was like, this wasn't twice a week. Five days a week. And the girls' volleyball season is the longest season because they start in November and it goes over the Christmas break. And they basically, if you do well, you play until OFSA, which is March. So I fell in love with coaching through that. And I had... uh, Remember Rebecca Moskowitz? Do, yeah. Yeah, so Rebecca was one of the players that I coached. Uh, and we had great success, primarily because the league was really weak. <laughs> so we basically went almost undefeated for five years. And we had two club players join us for some of those seasons. But just coaching them and saying, let's work on serve receive (laughs) and let's work on not just giving the ball over the net allowed them to be very successful plus we were practicing so much i don't know if every team was doing the same uh so we became big rivals with earl haig and do you know bob chalette yep yep but bob was the coach at earl haig so we had a good rivalry although we never lost it wasn't really a rivalry (laughs) (laughs) if bob hears this i'm gonna get a phone call oh for sure so anyways, uh, so we won lots of championships. And we went to OFSA and did terrible at OFSA because we weren't that good. We just were good in a bad league. But we did go to OFSA twice. And so then I was not I was doing very unproductive on the work side, nothing major. And I saw a little blurb in the North York Mirror that a new indoor beach volleyball facility has opened up. And I had played a very few amount of beach volleyball moments in my life up to that point. I'd gone to North Beach a handful of times with some friends and we'd take our girls volleyball team there to practice, uh, just have a social every once in a while. But it's certainly, I was not a beach volleyball player at the time. So I saw this, I went and I met George Shermer, who's my current partner. And uh, George introduced me to his partner at the time named Morris Fishstein. And this was early on in Beach Blast. So Beach Blast had opened in fall, October, November 1997. And I went in uh, probably January of 1998. Just sort of said, I'm a fan of volleyball. I was probably 27-ish. Are there any job opportunities? So they hadn't really hired anyone yet full-time. And I was the first full-time employee that they hired. And my main job at the beginning was to manage the league. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the evening. So I kind of worked like 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., four days a week, doing some answering of phone calls and sales during the day, league schedules, league results. And I'd actually run the leagues each evening. And in the early days of Beach Blast, The league finished a little bit earlier than it did in the later years because it wasn't quite sold out yet. 
and there was a thriving adult two-on-two beach volleyball community because there had been, you know, the pro tour and the triple A and double A and single A. So there's a lot of adult volleyball. And this is before youth beach volleyball became really a thing. So the only people playing volleyball or beach volleyball were adults. So we used to have drop-in that would start around 10, 1030 at night on those nights. And all these top-level players wanted to practice and train and compete because they were going to do it in the summer. So I'd be there until 1, 2, 3 in the morning almost every night for the first two years that I was working. And I'd be playing a good amount of that time. So not there were levels of play. Like I was never an amazing volleyball player, but these are all the top Canadian teams and they were training. And so I was exposed to this incredible amount of volleyball. And George back then had an indoor club called the JCC blues. So I became uh, an assistant coach sort of the first month that I started working there and helping with some boys teams that, his middle son, Daniel Shermer, was on, and uh, they had another. They had a kid, his name was Hanny Fidali. Did you ever meet Hanny? I don't think so, no. Hanny was the single greatest 14-year-old boy that has ever played volleyball in Ontario. He was 6'3", 220, of solid muscle. He could dunk a basketball, and the height that they played on at that net was about four foot four. And he was fully mature. And the rest of the team wasn't particularly great. But they kept telling me they won all, the t- these, won all these tournaments. And Hanny and Daniel didn't practice with our team. They practiced with an older team but played with us. So I'd never met Hanny. And I joined mid-season, so they said, come to the tournament. So I did. And every single match he played, he gave a kid a bleeding nose. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Every match. So he ended up playing at Waterloo and came back and played as an adult at Beach Blast. But he was the greatest 14-year-old boy that ever played OBA. Because <laughs> he was so strong relative to everyone. So anyways, uh, I continued on at Beach Blast. And they had some ownership shifts. And I became one of the partners shortly after I started working there. And... George and I had run the company virtually together since early on. So George and I have run Beach Blast since 2001 alone. We had some silent partners for a short amount of time, but we made all the decisions. And, And then I started playing beach volleyball, learning to play beach volleyball through working at Beach Blast. And I started playing on the OBA beach tour in 98 or 99, and I got certified as a level one beach coach in the very first time that OBA offered it, and Jim Cook was the instructor, and they did it at Wasega at the Beach Nationals. So that's basically how I got into it. It evolved out of that, and over the many years, the 22-ish years that we were in business, uh, things evolved from leagues being the backbone of the business, adults playing four-on-four and six-on-six, corporate events, birthday parties for kids that we used to do a ton of at the beginning. But because back then, no one else was doing birthday parties, so there weren't that many options for families. And then it sort of, people caught on and said, oh, Loblaw's birthday party and karate class birthday party and coloring book birthday party and manicure pedicure birthday party. And so we sort of said, well, we're not going to do it so much. We started doing more tournaments and fundraisers and third parties are renting our courts to do that. So we had a, an amazing run. The community that formed was outstanding. Volleyball, as you know, generally makes people that are, they're good character people because you have to share in volleyball. You know, you can't just, be like uh, a top-notch basketball player and say, oh, I'll rebound the ball, I'll dribble it up, I'll shoot and score, then I'll steal it from the other team and block their shots. You guys stand in position, and if I decide to give you the ball, I will. But volleyball's not like that. So it requires some 
certain character traits that that make uh, good quality relationships. And I've seen I've seen a, an absolute ton of relationships form and marriages form and births of children and kids and next generations of players through my 20 years. Because I was really with the face of Beach Blast, right? And I was hands-on with the leagues for the vast majority of my time. And I played in 50% of the leagues that we operated the entire time. So I knew personally well 50% of the league members and the other ones I knew a good portion of them personally. So... I literally have met, that number's got to be 20,000 people (laughs) over the course of the time. Because we ran programs at the docks for many years. In its heyday, we had a thriving business there. And then remember, we've been the managers of Ashbridge's Bay Beach Volleyball League, the biggest adult league in the world. And we do that for the Ontario Volleyball Association. This is year number 12. Wow, I feel old all of a sudden because I was I was a young man working at the OVA when that lease was signed, and now you're saying it's year twelve, and I'm, I'm old all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. So I remember. I mean, Josh, we've known each other since you were at OVA, and Josh and I, we ran an annual tournament at Beach Blast called Play with the Pros, and we did it uh, three times. I think we were on year three before COVID interrupted us. We did, uh, you let us, uh, became a partner and we ran the Toronto Pro Beach League, which was like a branch of Ben's uh, NBVL. Like you guys have had a, a ton of programs there, just of our listeners who maybe aren't in the Toronto area or aren't familiar. So it opens in 97. You become an official owner in 2001. You got, correct me if I'm wrong, seven indoor courts, eight outdoor courts, right? And like you said, you're you're managing so many programs because I think when armchair quarterbacks like myself think about a facility, like you, you kind of get biased by your lens, whether it's going to be oh we're going to run club programs or we're going to run high performance. But uh, I don't think it can survive on its own. So like you said, it's that relationship building where you're running leagues, and then at, at one point, you know, you were the I, I guess unofficial training center for the national team because there were so many men and women who trained there who were playing professionally. You got birthday parties going on. You got corporate stuff. Like, just take me through all the hats you're wearing to like run a facility. Because, like I said, if people think like, "Oh, it'd be great to run a facility," but you can't stay in one lane because I don't think volleyball works that way, right? Well, that's a good question, and I'll share some some experiences that we had and that I've gone through. So. So as an indoor beach volleyball facility opening in 1997, North Beach already existed. Right, right. And I had gone to the original location, which is in the north part of Toronto, hence the North Beach. And they had a small three-court facility before they moved to Railside and had their five courts, which was the vast majority of their experience. And then they added three courts much later in their, in their career. And unfortunately, North Beach closed as well. So they were running adult leagues. So there was some community and there was already uh, what used to be Toronto East Sport and Social Club running adult leagues at the beach. So in Heatwave, the tournament, the big Sick Kids fundraiser existed and the Hope tournament existed. So there was some organized volleyball, either beach or grass, already in Toronto. Forget court volleyball, there's lots of that. So there was a thriving amount of people that played volleyball. It just takes time to build up the community and have it so that there's enough revenue to pay the expenses because these businesses are challenging because they sit empty during the daytime. When people are at work, there's not a lot of activity. And when, uh, when we were early on in our career, there was quite a lot of school groups that would come and rent beach courts for fun field trips. But that dissipated dramatically over the years because they ran out of funding and they didn't want to pay for buses. So it wasn't, it was way better in 1999 than it was in 2018. (laughs) So we had to turn to, okay, these birthday parties that we're going to run and court rentals 
and corporate events. So the docks was like a breeding ground of corporate events. We would run 200 corporate events in about uh, 90 days. So that was kind of my main job early on in Beach Blast uh, in the summers. And why I share that with you, this isn't about the business, was the employees were all top-level volleyball players who moved to Toronto to play AA or AAA and were looking for part-time jobs. So uh, Dan Casey, Adam Parks, Ryan Causey, Mingo, Darren, who both worked at Beach Blast, and uh, Tim Verboom. So, like, the average height of our employees was 6'7". <laughs> uh, so all these BC kids were coming to Toronto because there wasn't much in BC in the summers. So Brian Hebert, so Mingo and Darren had come to Toronto to go to York because York was close to Beach Blast. So they got jobs at Beach Blast and trained as much as they could. Brian was the same thing. He just never ended up going to school here, but he was training and playing. Uh, George, like Josh Binstock, played on our JCC Blues Club. So George had introduced these guys to beach volleyball early on. And at the beginnings of youth beach volleyball, the OVA was offering all these guys were dominant because they were the only ones playing. So, but all these guys were our employees in the summer and, you know, they do their job, they do their job. There were lulls, there were breaks in between the activity. They'd go and pepper for hours <laughs> or play short court or play real games. Like I'd say, okay, guys, you got to come back to work now. They'd be like, oh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so on the weekends, they'd go all play in all these double-A, triple-A tournaments. So that was... Uh, yeah, I don't think the alumni of staff ends there. I think uh, Christian Redmond, who I'm good buddies with, I know he worked at Beach Blast. I think Jesse Lelliot, like even right yes, up till yeah. the end, like Felipe and, and Maverick and some other people. Like the, the the staff alumni game you guys could have would be a who's who, I think, of beach volleyball. <laughs> yeah, but I would never play a game that I wasn't going to be decided. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, uh, in about, uh, what year was it? I don't know exactly what year it was, but Volleyball Canada had a deal with North Beach to be the national team training center. And it was expiring, so Suzanne Judd, who worked for Volleyball Canada, reached out to us and said, all the players would like to make the training center at Beach Blast. Would you like to do it? So I said, sure, we'll, we'll look at it. Send us what's, what's the deal. So as it turned out, the deal was we supplied the courts, and that was it. <laughs> So we agreed, we, we signed a contract and did it for a year. And then they said, well, okay, we'd like to renew it. It was so great. <laughs> and we said, well, we're not going to renew the contract. We don't want to be tied down to it. But you tell the players, call, call us, and we'll provide them with free courts. But I just don't want to be tied down to it. And back then, this is pre-program, right? There oh, there wasn't a head coach, right? Like this was there was no coach. There was no nothing. Yeah, it was Mark and John, Conrad and Jody, Lubacek and Mike Slane, and the women were really in Quebec, so there wasn't really a lot of females that were part of this that were using our courts a lot. So George had a cell phone. They'd call George. They were happy to work on his schedule. So they and George was an early riser. So he'd go and work and start. Uh, George dealt with the facility side of things. So they'd come at 6, 7 in the morning and practice two, three, four, five times a week. And we did that for easily nine years, eight years, a long time. Could have been 14 years. And that was all. George was there 99% of the time. And we wouldn't charge these people. And, you know, we had to pay for heat and hydro, so it wasn't nothing. But we weren't really giving up, you know, we weren't telling other people, no, you can't come, we're turning you away because these guys want to play. But there were expenses that we had to incur, and we did. And this wasn't, there was no affiliation formally with Volleyball Canada. So then move forward, and Volleyball Canada decides we're going to actually create a program and we're going to hire a coach. So they hire Leonard 
And I think, I, I don't know the exact year we're talking now. Like 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there, I think. Yeah. Maybe 9. Yeah. So whatever it was. So, and we're, we're sort of under the impression that it's going to be a beach blast, but nobody has actually formally reached out to us. And yet, I hear through the grapevine that, okay, Ben Saxton and Maverick Hatch and Jamie Broder and, like, they've asked all these young athletes to move to Toronto. And they haven't secured courts yet. So finally, they do. Leonard reaches out to us and we rent them courts. This is the first time that we're renting courts. And sorry, I should preface it. They used to run ID training camps to identify athletes. Volleyball Canada would use Beach Blast and they would pay us for that facility. So that was, we benefited from that and they benefited from the courts. And we did that, you know, whatever it was, once or twice a year whenever they were doing their camps. But now this is the first time that they're saying, okay, we want Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday from whatever, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. and this many courts and we'll pay you. Uh, whatever we charged them was about 15% of our normal rate, so not a substantial amount. And everything had been centralized. Leonard was the coach. All these athletes reported and they had to do, do what the program was doing, right? Meanwhile... They weren't using all the courts, so some of the older players who weren't necessarily part of the program were training side-by-side side with them, and I think the younger players are like, oh, these guys get to scrimmage, and we're doing toss-a-ball, bump-a-ball, toss-a-ball, bump-a-ball. <laughs> so I think that created a lot of tension, actually. So they went through their first year. We were discussing year number two, and gave them a very similar price. We might've raised it a little bit. And then sort of three months into it, they say, we've run out of money. So they decided Downsview Park had two beach courts there. And Downsview Park was actually some kind of official national team affiliate, something or other. So they offered them free use of those courts. So this is the funny story I told you I was going to tell you. I offered Volleyball Canada free use of our courts if I could be on the national team. <laughs> and instead, they built their center for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I'm indirectly responsible for that. I, I, it sounds like it, but uh, we've come so full cycle because now we're neighbors and you got a new yeah. indoor facility. <laughs> That's people. Yeah, yeah. So... So I, I don't think I ever would have been on the national team if I hadn't tried to bribe them. <laughs> so anyway, they moved uh, to those free courts and then got whatever they got a grant or something to retrofit some empty space. And now they've got the national team training center and Canada has done well at beach volleyball. So everything's good. We're happy with it. Uh, when they left, I mean, we didn't lose a lot of revenue. <laughs> So it just, but that was the problem with these recreational facilities. They weren't utilized heavily during the daytime. You could never sort of make the market like hockey arenas where people are playing at long prime time hours and even weird hours because there's just not that many rinks and the demand was so high. There just was never that demand. So we very rarely had waiting lists on our leagues. Like we'd sell out. And it was the same people coming year in, year out, because the experience was good. But it wasn't like I was turning away, oh, you 40 teams, you can't play, because it wasn't like that. And North Beach had a thriving league as well. And it's actually, you know, that was where my true heart was with the league, because that was my biggest involvement on a day-to-day -day basis. And when Beach Blast closed and all these league people... You know, they, a few of them would have gone to North Beach, but there wasn't, they didn't have a ton of capacity. And, you know, COVID hit soon after that, shutting North Beach down. And soon after that, North Beach sold their building, so they closed. So I, I estimate that group of people that played regularly as an activity in the adult beach leagues at North Beach and Beach Blast of... 
at least a thousand, maybe two, maybe twelve hundred or fifteen hundred people a week. That that was something that they looked forward to with their friends. And it was so easy because it was all organized, right? You didn't have to call everyone up and say, "Would you like to play?" Like you're signing up. So that is the community that grew closest to my heart that I was a part of, and I knew them so well. And that they were the regulars, the backbone of the business, and they would then play tournaments and drop-ins, and they fell in love with Indoor Beach. So I'll tell you what happened to me the other day. I went down to Ashbridge's, and I was helping to run the league in the evening, and I was just walking along the boardwalk, and I see a lot of people that I know from Beach Blast, they play pickup beach volleyball, right? And they've fallen in love with it, and it's an amazing venue, and... The community down there is wonderful, and there's a group of whatever it is, 200 or 500 diehard people that play two-on-two pickup beach volleyball every waking hour that they have free, and it's no to low cost, right? You buy a net and a set of lines, and that can be shared with a group where they're your own, but you just go and play. And I had a whole bunch of them come up to me and say, are you looking at a new indoor beach facility? And I said, we're not really the real estate prices in Toronto are astronomical, which was what pushed us out of Leswin. It's not like we weren't, we were doing well, as well as we had ever done. But our landlord sold the building and we had a termination clause in our lease. And they said, you have to triple your lease if you want to continue. And we said, well, that's impossible to make that revenues higher than expenses. So it's crazy. So that's what forced us out. All these people... Were then homeless in the volleyball sense. They started playing at the beach. They were happy. They played throughout the year. Most I, I, I walked my dogs down by the beach, and there were people playing all throughout the winter this year. So they all come up to me, all these multiple people, and say, are you opening, are you opening, are you looking? And I said, no. And I said, if you're really interested in just recreating your environment at the beach of 14 hours a day playing two-on-two, that business model, it doesn't make, it doesn't connect with putting a roof on it and paying rent, right? So there's this disconnect of this amazing, thriving two-on-two adult community, but they don't want to pay $60 every time they come play, which was kind of what it would have to be if, if it would be like a fitness club membership model minus the thousand people joining and only 20 coming to work out, they would all join and want to play every hour. Right, right. And I think being a part of the volleyball community, one of the disconnects I see is that uh, you mentioned the amount of athletes going through your leagues, North Beach leagues, or you go down to pre-COVID Ashbridge Bay on a Thursday night and there's a thousand people there, right? Like 103 courts to play in four on four, six on six. Like there's a ton of people, but uh, I think I experienced this when, when we ran play with the pros, like you said, like, how do we convert these people to fans or to the community? Like I was talking to one of our players the other day that like, you're a big basketball fan that if you watch a Raptors game, I think technically, tactically, you and your kids can talk about what's going on and you can have an educated conversation where I just sometimes get a sense in the beach volleyball community that like we, the Olympics are great and everybody gets fired up, but I'm not sure they really understand tactically what's going on other than, Oh, this player missed a lot of serves or whatever they're talking about. Right? Like I think there's so many people who play our sport recreationally and really enjoy it, but I'm not sure how to convert them into, you know, fans of, of the international game or to even convert them maybe to uh, like a pro tour. Cause obviously when you were playing and getting into beach, uh, beach blast at the start in the early two thousands, there was a pro tour. Right. But now that that seems so far away that we have all these people who love volleyball, but to, to connect the community to then have like a professional league, it, it seems like the moon right now. Yeah, it is a huge disconnect and we tried our best to be ambassadors of the sport and promoters of the sport. And when the FIVB came to Toronto, when John May was the promoter back in whatever, 98, 99, 2000, you know, we encouraged people to go down and watch it. And for sure a handful did, but it wasn't a million. And then when the World Tour Finals were here, uh, what year was that? 2000 and. 16-ish? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, I, I would go to the leagues each night and make like a personal announcement to everyone that this is the biggest thing. These are the best players in the world. And 
you don't get to see them frequently in person and it's free you know they were free tickets so I went I, I basically lived there that week and so did all our staff so I'm not sure who was working but <laughs> I just leave the door open we'll figure it out it's- and I saw lots of people I know but it, the conversion rate from the thousands is not in the 50% range it's probably in the 18 to 15% range of these people care something about beyond playing volleyball and you know it's not it's hard in a major market I feel like Toronto to compete with not a major televised production so just like the CFL seems to be super successful in Edmonton Saskatchewan they're the bigger fish in a smaller sea. It's hard against the Leafs and against the Raptors and against the Blue Jays. And NFL fans can go to Bills. And so unless you're sort of a diehard willing to look it up on YouTube, which is only recently that people start thinking about things like that. And the, the promotion and the marketing of this sport is not well done in Canada. Even though it's an amazing game and, you know, don't tell people, but I actually prefer to watch indoor volleyball. The action is better. Uh, I like to watch beach volleyball. I like to watch the people that I know play. So, I mean, I I went on a family vacation not that long ago. We went on to an ADP tour in Cincinnati that Josh and Vinstock and Sam Schachter were playing in and they... They win that one or come second? I think they came second to the Brazilians. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And Guto and... Uh, Samon, I think he was playing with that year. Yeah, like they were like young guys. The Brazilian guys were young guys. So, you know, we tried to incorporate it into our lifestyle. I mean, I, my wife doesn't play, but she supported that. My kids, most of them played decent level of volleyball. And at least we get to go to White Castle for the first time. So they were happy. <laughs> What else is there to do in Cincinnati, right? So, I mean. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like, I was watching the Olympics, the volleyball as much as I could, and Melissa and Sarah. So Sarah, when she was younger, she used to come play in our co-ed twos tournaments at the docks. And I, she was either in high school or maybe at Nebraska and doing it in the summers. And she was perfectly good for the amount of time she put into beach volleyball, but she never won any of these tournaments. So I never expected Sarah to become the amazing beach volleyball player that she continues to be. And Melissa, so, I mean, I'm sure you've gone over this many times, you know, her dad, Hernan, did a program at Beach Blast called, the original name of it was Cubs, I believe. That was a training program for youth athletes. And that turned into what became known as Elite Beach Volleyball. Were you a coach? Uh, I think one year you could technically call me that. I I was like a one day a weeker because I I still had a nine to five, but gosh, I'm trying to think like you would go down there and you'd be coaching beside Hernan, John Child, Dana Cook, uh, I think Dan Shermer was there, like Viv Chan, like a lot of like really good coaches. And I think in that cycle, at least for Youth Worlds, if you were a female athlete, you were coming from that club. And if you were a male athlete, you were either coming from Elite Beach or you played for John May's like crush teams. Like they were pretty well yeah, like. Uh, they won every tournament. They were yeah. Involved. They were training a lot and nobody else was training at all. Yes. <laughs> and they were attracting the better athletes that were interested in training. Yes. <laughs> So combine all of those things with good coaching and they just dominated for many years and really OVA wasn't offering programs that essentially turned into the provincial team program. Yeah, no, it really did. So that was the end of elite and the beginning of the provincial team program. And so we ran us, I mean, Hernan did that for several years at beach Plaza, and then he took it to Ashbridges and we ran a summer camp one summer with Hernan as the headline coach and Melissa and Felipe were CITs 
and I was a coach, and uh, Daniel was a coach, and Hernan had a couple other guys. He had a guy from Japan that was here for the summer coaching, and there was quite a few uh, decent players in that camp as well. So George and Hernan have been friends for a long time, so I've met Hernan through Beach Blast, and you know Melissa was just a very young kid that I, I really didn't see that she was going to become really one of the, if she's not one of the top three defenders in the whole world, I'd be shocked. So it's amazing to see that. And Felipe worked at Beach Blast pretty recently, only like three years, well, four years ago now. Uh, so yeah, we have a good connection with their family. And Mark Heese, when Mark retired, Mark wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do. And we gave him a lot of coaching opportunities and ran boot camps and clinics for adults and for kids. And Mark and John ran their peace and child camps a few times that the first time they ran it, I went as a camper. <laughs> <laughs> so I was the only one that could sign the waiver themselves. <laughs> yeah, <I bet>. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so there's been, I mean, everyone has come through the doors over time. Uh, but to your point, we would, we'd always have these discussions. Like, is there a name that we could bring to Beach Blast to run a clinic or some sort of camp that the name alone would attract participants? And they're really, back then, the only name that we ever said was Carrie Walsh and Misty May. That said, like, if we did that, people will come. Everything else, oh, if it fits in my schedule and it's convenient, yeah, I'll come. And I'm sure the coaching is good, but there's no brand name. No, I even find that with doing this podcast where like Todd Rogers or Samantha Brescia will come on the show and their podcast will get the same numbers as a no, no knock on them, but a kid who played CCAA who just tells some funny stories. Like it just, we're, I, I love our community, but at the same time, there, there's just some things that make me go, huh? Like it's not. Uh, they're just so interested in playing. They don't think about it. Uh... Absolutely. Like I think if, if Sam Schachter or Melissa were walk down the boardwalk on one of these nights at Ashford's Bay when the league is full, I don't think anybody bats an eye where like if the same level hockey player walks through an arena, they're getting mobbed on like a, a peewee tournament day. Like they would be. Well... You say that, but tonight, uh, Sarah and Melissa are doing like a promo appearance at Sherway Gardens. See, th this is a good shout out, but your episode won't be out in time to like promote this in the next 10 minutes. No, so. no, 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 no. I, saw, I saw that on social media, uh, but it, they did get a lot of attention on the Olympics. If they had managed to win a medal, it would have been dramatically increased, but they still did get a lot they were the number one seed. They've won a world championship. They went undefeated in pool play. They dominated their pre-quarter. And unfortunately, uh, I mean, you would know better than me. How'd they get such a tough draw in the quarters? Honestly, that is, that is the draw. Uh, Australia finished second in their pool and they were... Who, who did Australia? Who finished first in their pool? Uh, that young Russian team, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names because it wouldn't be respectful, but they were very good. But they ended up getting, I, I won't call it an upset. They had a very good match against Latvia, and Latvia beat them in three. Um, but that's just, that That was the draw. Like, uh, honestly, like they were going to have to go through somebody, and it just ended up. And I think Australia is a tough matchup for anybody. Like, when we had Josh Finstock on Sharp Cuts, like, they play a style that was like almost made for the Olympics, right? Like you couldn't coach your kids to play that in an OVA tournament because for seven games, you can't spin serve and two ball and set the ball super wide and run back plays because you would just exhaust yourself, right? But to run that format with a day off in between, like they were, they were all world, right? So. Yeah. yeah. So I'll tell you, you know, you brought up uh, Brand or our other Canadian women's team, Heather and Brandy that they had, you know, the same result as Sarah and Melissa. They seem to struggle more and have more challenging matches, but somehow pulled it out and pulled out a... I was surprised they beat Clayson Sponsel. I thought they were really doing well in pool play. And, uh, I don't know, Kelly Clay seems to lose focus. <laughs> they say, are we playing still? I'm just... I forgot. 
but Heather and Brandy, uh, who've had pretty good success over the last, it's been five years, four years. Yeah, I feel like, what was it, the fall of 2018 or 20, yeah, it must have been 2018 when they just went on a run, right? Didn't they yeah, win yeah. Vegas? They ran, they won Mexico. Like, they, they were the best team in the world. Like Yeah, so many years ago, as you know, Brandy played indoor at York, and I believe Ellie was friends with Brandy. So one night in the Monday Night Fours League, Ellie needed a sub, so he invites Brandy to play. I've never met Brandy and we played against their team. And I mean, it's not a women's hate net. It's co-ed. It's a little bit higher maybe than she's used to playing at. And she hadn't really played beach volleyball at this point, but no one that was there would have said, can somebody pick out a future beach volleyball Olympian? (laughs) She would have been selection number 94 of 95. And for her to have invested so much and trained so hard and worked so hard at it, to really become, she's an excellent blocker and her overall skills have improved dramatically and she attacks well now. I never <laughs> would have predicted that. It was That's an amazing achievement, what she has done to go from the Monday Night Beach last week to fifth place in the Olympics. It's funny the the ripple effect or the the amount of connections you've had, right? Like the names that have gone through there, just the opportunities, and like we talked about, you guys are running leagues, tournaments, like uh, clubs have been through there. It's just kind of cool to hear the story. But uh, with the new project coming with indoor courts, like you are coaching indoor, I think you're one of the coaches with Unity. Like not to make you feel old, but you've seen Canadian volleyball progress to a point where like. I don't think the young kids really recognize that like having a men's team in the Olympics is a big deal because we went a couple cycles there without it. Right. And I, and I think our women's team is very competitive. And then both beach teams, like what do you see maybe for the future of Canadian volleyball? Like what's going to keep it going here? Cause I think it's gotta be fair to say that participation numbers have skyrocketed, like youth numbers, like you talked about, like with the adult beach stuff, like maybe adult has shrunken cause there's not a triple A double A single anymore on the OVA beach tour. But like, I don't think 14 U was five tiers deep back in like the, the late nineties. Right. I don't know if it even existed. So kind of, what do you see progressing as like, you've, you know, you maybe didn't realize the trend when you were in it to all these people coming through the beach blast and maybe they're not a future Olympian, but now that you've connected the dots and kind of been there for a lot of people, what do you see maybe down the road that we can look forward to? Yeah, you're right. I mean, when OVA started doing beach tour, it was all adults, no kids. They gradually introduced a few divisions of kids. And and then gradually over time, as the pro beach and the high-level adult beach dissipated, like there's virtually no adults playing OVA beach anymore, and it hasn't been thriving for at least a decade. So there was a handful of players and then ultimately what the highest level of beach became was the youth players wanting to play higher and play for money and all these satellite operators so they expanded the beach tour opportunities so people didn't have to travel so far and the beach numbers have grown a lot but it's still a fraction of what play court volleyball and we ran OVA beach satellites for We did it for many, many, many years, and we started all with adults, no youth. And we gradually switched that to some youth, some adult, until it was all youth, no adult. And that coincided with, you know, I used to play a lot of twos tournaments that I would organize at the docks, and I'd organize them at Beach Blast. And then as I stopped playing competitive twos, there were no more men's and twos tournaments. We didn't offer them anymore. I started playing fours, so all the tournaments started to play fours. And we'd still have co-ed twos tournaments because I'd play that every once in a while. (laughs) And I think that the the success of volleyball at the high level is still thriving. People are getting good opportunities and good coaching. And OVA was always way ahead in beach. I think that BC is, if not caught up, pretty close or... Maybe you think surpassed, I don't know. But you and I talk about this sometimes. The financial challenges to being a top beach player are 
not insurmountable, but extremely limiting. So if you were a top university volleyball player and someone said you could go play pro overseas somewhere and make $20,000 or $200,000 and it's to play. Like if your team does well, you'll make more maybe, but you still get paid even if you do terribly, right? Versus beach, you got to pay a lot of your own expenses. There's virtually no payback as you begin, right? Even if you win a low-level tournament, that wouldn't really even pay your expenses. So, I mean, I, I spoke to Felipe many times over the year. Like, they were paying out of pocket to do this, that, and the other and going to these one-star events. And even the times they did well would never pay for their expenses. So eventually, I just think these a lot of these young athletes run out of money before they get seasoned enough and go through enough to get enough points to go higher and higher and maybe an easier road or a more lucrative tournament. So I think that's a huge challenge to beach, which, I mean, you know, you're the head honcho of the next gen and realize the struggles they have to make it viable financially. So if I was to pluck a top left side player from a top university team and say, We'll pay you what you would have been paid to play pro, but play beach. I firmly believe like a 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", top university player could be a successful beach player in a short turnaround. Yes. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think what's maybe frustrating for me is, one, I haven't figured out a way to crack the code to get like all these athletes who love volleyball and they play it weekly and they look forward to it to being fans. But I think the other thing is, the model has grown, um, but I don't think the sport has caught up with it. And what I mean by that is so many people just think, oh, we just need sponsors. We'd have a pro tour or you could be a professional beach volleyball player if you had sponsors. Where like if if a player approached you, Josh, and even if it was $100 to put Beach Blast on their shorts, like what is the return on investment there? Like I don't think the era of just like I'll wear your hat and you give me $50,000 is still alive, right? Like that era is far gone and we haven't we haven't leveled up the model of like what is the sponsor's return? That, you know, this question has been discussed for 20 years, right? And John May had his tour and whatever relationships he had that generated a significant amount of dollars, uh, those got certain things off the ground and had decent amount of decent amount of participation. I don't believe that there's ever been a return for any sponsor in Canadian beach volleyball. So eventually those relationships end and someone changes jobs and says, well, I'm no longer in charge of that budget. So they go to the next person and they say, are you crazy? Why would we spend $100,000 or $100 or a million dollars on this tournament that essentially is really for the players? Yeah. So I had this discussion with Leonard a million times over the years and over many, many, many conversations over the years. And I, there is no return for the sponsors, no long-term one no sustainable one. So there is no value in, in business. If there's no value, there's not a real long-term sustainable future. So you can sucker people for one-offs, <laughs> but that's not great for viability. And like, look at the world tour. They were supposed to, uh, they were supposed to come for two, three years on their contract. Like it was one year with the option for more, I believe. And I think they lost a fortune and left. Well, I think the funny thing is like when you get around dinner and you start talking about beach volleyball, I think one thing that, that's funny that we've we've really moved the starting blocks behind is uh, people don't want to pay for it. And then we're not used to paying it. We're like, you'll pay $14 to go watch a movie that you might not even like. But if anybody asks you to pay an entry fee to go watch a day of beach volleyball, whoa, 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 like I'm not paying an entry fee. And it's like, how do you expect the sport to thrive where... Like, I think Pan Am Games proved that people will pay. Like, I think that was a great event run by Toronto and doing that. But to, to see the Edmonton event, and I think a lot of work went into that. But to see, like, uh, it hasn't been back. And if it was making money, it would probably be back. I mean, COVID's yeah, probably put things on pause. Like, but like, yeah, it's a huge challenge. I mean, AVP is a successful appearing brand. They've gone bankrupt many times. 
and they have the same or had the same policy. And I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe that the original origin of no fees for beach volleyball was because in California, if you were going to get a permit to run a an event at a California public beach, you couldn't charge for it. Okay, fair, yeah. So I'm not, I wouldn't swear my life that that's the truth. But then, you know, once that gets going, they made that mistake back then and it has carried on this far that we can't generate ticket sales. And if you're not doing that, where is the revenue coming? Sponsors. So in beach volleyball, at least, you don't need a sponsor, you need a patron. Maybe that's the model. Maybe that's right. the model. You know what this Athletes Unlimited started? Is that, uh, You're not joking. That's the origin? Like you can be a patron of Athletes Unlimited? Because they, they're in a lot of sports, aren't they? Like, no, sorry. No, what I was saying is the, the family behind Athletes Unlimited is a wealthy family. Oh, the, okay. Because, yeah, their model is they're into lacrosse, softball, volleyball. Like, they're doing a lot. But you're saying that's because they're passionate about sport, not because it's a business. Well, I think that they can turn it into a business. But somebody has to have deep enough pockets to fund it through its lean times. Which is the AVP model. like. <laughs> right. Well, AVP just got sold again. And whether it continues on as a going concern, I, I'm sure that I think Bally's bought it and... They seem to promote the gambling aspect of it, so maybe that's a viable future for them. See, that's what's frustrating about our sport is I love volleyball, and I, I've put a lot of time into it, and, and I've made it my career, but I don't think my wife would appreciate me spending our family's money to run a tour for pro beach players. Like, I just don't think that's a winnable argument in my household. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, we you've done certain things at Beach Plus you tried that may or may not have been financially beneficial but you know you're the pro league had their whatever you did it for four or five six weeks and you got team owners to put in some money to get it up and going and you paid the expenses and it happened and yeah there's just this different infrastructure so what i've discovered you know so we started these new indoor hard courts at the hangar at Downview Park. And the new name is going to be the Toronto Volleyball Center. And so we're, we're not committed to certain things. We're just feeling things out right now. And I've been shocked by the amount of calls I've received for court rentals because there's so much... Uh, infrastructure and organizations and groups that play court volleyball because they've used school gyms and community centers of which there's hundreds of them. So there's a lot of it there at beach blast. We had to create all our own programming. So we ran the leagues, we ran the tournaments, we ran the birthday parties. Uh, we'd rent our courts to third parties that want to do fundraisers, but we very often run the event for them. So, there wasn't like 20, oh, I'm going to call this beach volleyball league and this beach volleyball group and see, do you guys want to come rent courts at beach class? And we're just going to be rental facility. We had to create the program or we would have been bankrupt in 1998, <laughs> which it almost was. Like revenues were not higher than expenses until year three. And George... Uh, he was passionate about it and he grew up in Czechoslovakia playing basketball and came to Toronto and volley. Did I say basketball? You did. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> playing volleyball and moved to Toronto in 1968 and volleyball was his way to get friends and his way to be having a social life and to meet girls. And so he played and George was a top volleyball player. I mean, back then there was only top volleyball players. I don't think there was recreational volleyball in the late 60s and 70s. So if you were playing as an adult, you were an elite player. <laughs> so, you know, they'd go to club tournaments and provincials and nationals and U.S. nationals. And he took a summer and went to California and fell in love with beach volleyball and played court volleyball at UCLA with top guys. And so volleyball changed his life and shaped his life and gave him friendships. And he's so passionate about it. And that really spilled down to me 
And we've been super supportive of the Ontario Volleyball Association through our years. I mean, I was the one that kept going to OVA and saying, we should do a winter beach tour. And for a while, they said no, right? Well, that's just a funny commentary about the pushback that, like, uh, I think a lot of coaches didn't want their kids playing beach and indoor in the same season. But, like, I think any coach who's going to make that argument, like, you need to show me that you're actually being driven by science and you're managing your kid's load and doing all this stuff. Because it's to say that playing this one Saturday at Beach Blast with their their buddy uh, at a winter beach tour event is going to, you know, mess them up for your indoor master plan. No way you're thinking that far ahead. Like, let the kids have fun. Like It's just a ridiculous way to think. Maybe if you were on the pathway to the Olympics, okay, fine. We don't want to disrupt your timing, but the vast majority of people in the pyramid are not at the top. So if you can find an activity that you enjoy, we should do it. So that took me years to get that going. And I mean, it was with you that we finally agreed on it, wasn't it? I was there. I was there. We finally agreed on the winter beach tour and it was decent for a while. I mean, it was never lucrative for us. It was a fun program to run and the kids enjoyed it. But now that's gone too, right? No North Beach, no West. There's still spikes in London, but it's small and I, they don't really do OVA anything. Yeah, that's true. So I think yeah, our sport is in a unique spot where I think a lot more kids are playing and a lot more people are enjoying it. But uh, it, it's just funny like you said like we run the league and i think that league wouldn't have come together if people in the community weren't passionate like ben saxton comes up with this idea we talk about it it's like oh how can i help you out how can we run in toronto talk to you and we find a night that's going to work and and, i mean you probably didn't make money off it i'm sure we got like a heck of a deal on the courts and then all the league owners are volleyball people who run clubs and then uh obviously the players probably didn't think the prize money was enough but we got them paid a little bit but like every every sponsor or partner or volunteer was somebody who loved volleyball in that group like i don't think any of us made money right so it was just kind of a unique observation where something cool happened but at the same time it it, it wasn't a business i won't accuse it of being a business it was kind of a passion project to be honest right so yeah there are not that many volleyball businesses that are viable in the beach world Some of these youth clubs are not-for-profit, some are for-profit. On the backbone of inexpensive gymnasiums, they can make it work. Phoenix makes their beach camps work on the back of inexpensive court fees. And it's been successful, and they're introducing a lot of kids to the sport, which is amazing. So I don't begrudge anyone, of course, making money. No, gosh, no. It's the value, right? Are you offering value? So if you charge $1,000 or $10, if people are getting value for that, they'll continue and it will be sustainable. And that has always been always been true and will continue to be true. Unless somebody says, I'm putting $10 million into this volleyball venture. I don't want any return on my investment. Here you go, world free courts. So as today that hasn't happened yeah for our listeners i mean we're not trying to be negative and say that our our sport is terrible obviously we love it we're doing a volleyball podcast and we're putting it on the internet here but i mean our sport is underperforming a little bit but i don't i don't think it's any any knock against you because i think you're doing great things like i said you're you're coaching in the community you're running facilities you're doing all this great stuff so thanks for coming on the show and giving us a lesson and yeah once again just for our listeners we're not trying to say oh things are terrible they're they're so bad it's just I think we're underperforming and it's good just to have these conversations and maybe, maybe this sparks an idea in somebody else's head and they find the solution. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that there's, there's a lot of people playing volleyball. They love it. It's addictive when you play it. If you find a group at your, around your own level, it's totally addictive. Uh, the friendships and the bonds and it creates people's social lives And it's only underperforming in the professionalization of it. And that's not going to change overnight. Someone's got to take a long, deep look at it and come up with a strategy. And if they can connect all the volleyball people, there are a lot of them. So it's it's not unattainable. So thanks, Josh, for having me. Uh, I will look forward to continuing to watch volleyball and 
be involved in volleyball. I had this brief retirement, but now we're back, and I'm going to create some programs that I want to run, and we're going to have lots of people in and out through this new volleyball center, and we're still doing a small indoor beach league at Downsview Park on the few hours that Volleyball Canada hasn't rented it out. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And normally I'd put you on the spot right now to try to give us a laugh, but I think you told it earlier when you – you know, you, you mentioned you wanted to be on the national team for a fair trade for some court space. So I'm glad you shared that one because... Uh... I'll, give you, I'll give you one quick one. <laughs> Many years ago, we were running a co-ed twos tournament. I get a call from a kid. He says, I'd like to play in the tournament. I don't know if I should play in A, the higher division, or B, the lower division. I said, well, I don't know. What, do you play volleyball? And he said, yeah, I play on a club team and I'm pretty good. And what about your partner? Yeah, she's on a good club team. I said, so it's up to you. The level of A is pretty good. Like pass, set, hit. The guys score pretty regularly. If you're not blocking them, it's in trouble. As they get to the playoffs, they go on two every time, and the guys are pounding it. They're really good volleyball players. B division, they're less skilled, less experienced, less athletic. There's way more unforced errors, so there's longer rallies. So he says, I don't know. It's our first one. We'll go in B. I, I don't want to. It was Stephen Marr. <laughs> who, if you're a listener, you realize is a left side on the Canadian national team professional volleyball player and uh, 6'7". I mean, he was probably 6'5 at the time. <laughs> I can't remember who his partner was, but she was a good volleyball player as well. So they won the B division, let's put it that way. I was in A division, naturally. <laughs> just the amount of careers you have launched just by being available and running these events. So <laughs> I was Jake McNeil's first coach at a Spikes at Beach Blast many, 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 many years ago. See, look at all the stuff you can take credit for. Well, uh, thanks awesome. again, man. It was good to talk to you. I'm sorry I had to get right. you on a podcast to talk to you, but hopefully chat soon. And uh, thanks for everything you shared. Okay, thanks, Josh.